Hello, and welcome to part three of my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley, and I'm a professor in the Department of Biology and Marine Biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where I've been teaching an undergraduate class titled Antarctic Ecology, Geology, History, and Policy. In this podcast, I have distilled this class down into numerous parts that cover all these topics about Antarctica. Part three, presented here, is on the formation of the massive ice sheet that covers Antarctica and the development of its modern climate. In part two, I described how Antarctica formed through plate tectonics, with the Antarctic plate eventually breaking free of Gondwana, beginning about 35 million years ago. In doing so, Antarctica finally reached the polar position it has today. Polar regions receive far less solar radiation per year than the mid-latitudes, so are much colder year-round. Now, snow began to accumulate in Antarctica and did not melt in these cold conditions. Gradually, the snow filled low pockets and crevices on the landscape, which also included mountain ranges and canyons. The accumulated snow turned to ice and, over millions of years, began to even out to a flat surface as it covered all the topographic features of the landscape, including mountain ranges. This took millions of years before the ice sheet reached its present size and thickness by about 14 million years ago. So exactly what is an ice sheet? It's really just a very large glacier that moves with gravity. The Antarctic ice sheet is the largest single mass of ice on Earth, and it is divided by the Transantarctic Mountains into an east and west Antarctic ice sheet. This ice sheet, along with the polar position of the continent, is why Antarctica is the coldest place on Earth. The ice sheet has a high albedo, or reflectivity, and reflects sunlight year-round, meaning very little heat is absorbed at the surface. The high elevation adds to the cold temperatures as well. As mentioned in Part 1, the ice sheets covering the polar plateau are so thick that the elevation at the South Pole is 9,300 feet, with an average elevation of the polar plateau at 9,800 feet. This high elevation is in part due to the ice because the ice itself is on average 2 kilometers thick, with some of the thickest ice at 4 kilometers thick. All this ice covers 98% of the Antarctic continent, putting so much pressure below, it actually pushes the continental crust of the Antarctic plate down into the earth so that some of this crust is actually below sea level. As ice melts and removes its weight from the land, the land slowly rises back up in a process that geologists call isostatic uplift. You can see the result of this uplift in many coastal areas of Antarctica where a series of raised beaches recognized by the water-worn pebbles and cobbles that formed by wave action when they were at the edge of the water are now located several meters or more above current sea level. Sometimes you can see several long parallel ridges that represent previous old beaches as you walk upslope from the current waterline, such as that inexpressible island in the Ross Sea. It is one of many geologic features you can see when you visit Antarctica. In fact, anywhere you go on Earth, geologic history is written on the landscape. You just need to know how to read it. As the Antarctic ice sheet flows off the polar plateau from the center to the edges of the continent, it's like frosting on a cupcake. The frosting will flow off faster where there are steeper sides to go down, or become channeled in canyon-like features on the surface. So it is with the polar plateau, as all this ice flows and separates into individual glaciers and valleys and canyons until they eventually reach the sea. Due to the steepness of the terrain below, these glaciers may flow relatively fast into the sea and form giant floating ice tongues that extend out into the ocean and are longer than they are wide. One massive one is the Drygalski Ice Tongue in the Ross Sea, 
an extension of the David Glacier that is about 70 kilometers long from where it enters the ocean and about 20 kilometers wide. Its size is big enough to block and influence ocean currents in this region. As glaciers flow into the ocean together, they can form what is called an ice shelf. These can be grounded on the ocean floor or floating and can be massive, covering hundreds of square kilometers of ocean. They can also be hundreds of meters thick and have flat surfaces. The largest ice shelves on Earth are found in Antarctica, and the largest there is the Ross Ice Shelf, first seen by the British explorer Sir James Clark Ross in 1841. At that time, he referred to it as the Great Ice Barrier, as it blocked his ship from traveling farther south in the Ross Sea, and extended for hundreds of kilometers as they sailed along its front. The ice shelf and the sea were later named after his discoveries. Ice shelves, including the Ross Ice Shelf, will grow or retreat with climate change over millennia. In colder periods, the glaciers increase in size and extent so that the ice shelf also grows or advances farther out to sea. As ice shelves grow, pieces from the front edge eventually break off in a process called ablation or calving. Sometimes these pieces are small, but others can be enormous and drift for decades or centuries before they finally break up and melt. During our last ice age, peaking at about 18,000 to 20,000 years ago, when the temperatures were coldest, the Ross Ice Shelf advanced so far northward it covered nearly the entire Ross Sea. We know this as marine geologists have been able to map grounding lines from this ice shelf as it expanded across the sea floor. After the ice age ended, the ice shelf gradually retreated with the warming climate until it reached the position it has today. Speaking of climate, let's return to when Antarctica was finally separated from Gondwana beginning about 35 million years ago. As mentioned in part two of this podcast, when this separation occurred, it formed Drake Passage, the seaway now between the tip of South America and the Antarctic Peninsula. This opening now meant Antarctica was surrounded by ocean, and an ocean current, the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, began to flow all around the continent, helping to isolate it further from northern regions. This current is the only one that flows continuously and uninterrupted around Earth, with nothing to block its way. It also is a massive current, moving slowly eastward at depths up to 4 kilometers and can be up to 2 kilometers wide. This current also forms a boundary to what is referred to as the Southern Ocean, or where all other oceans meet and merge at about 60 degrees south latitude, though definitions do vary. The Antarctic Circumpolar Current is driven eastward by westerly winds and is also called the West Wind Drift. These winds are caused by a series of low-pressure systems that surround Antarctica that form when cold air from the south meets warm air from the north and appear as a circle of hurricanes that are placed all around the continent between about 40 to 60 degrees south latitude. Wind will blow from high to low-pressure areas and the temperature differences between the cold Antarctic air and the warmer northern air creates a large pressure difference that drives these winds all around the Southern Ocean and Antarctica. For centuries, mariners have recognized this change in winds when sailing south beyond Cape Horn. The winds in this region can be so fierce that they have been described as the Roaring Forties and the Screaming Fifties at those latitudes south. Because these winds also have nothing to block them as they blow around the globe, along with the circumpolar current, they can cause giant waves to form. The best way to understand this is to think about wind velocity, force, and fetch. Velocity is simply the speed of the wind, usually measured in knots or nautical miles. 
one nautical mile being 1.15 statute miles. Force, however, is the square velocity and is what you feel when you or the car you are driving is suddenly hit with a gust of wind and you almost fall over or lose control of your car. It is much greater than the wind speed itself and greater yet with colder temperatures. So the winds in the Southern Ocean can be quite damaging to ships, especially from sudden gusts. The last measurement of wind is fetch, or the distance it travels over land or water. In the Southern Ocean, as mentioned previously, there is nothing to block or stop wind as it blows around the globe. As a result, large waves can form from this unlimited fetch, along with the velocity and force of the wind, giving the Southern Ocean another designation as the roughest seas in the world. And they really are. I have been across Drake Passage by ship many times, and when the waves start rising to over 10 meters high, it becomes a very rocky ride indeed. Recent data also are showing that average wind speeds are increasing in the Southern Ocean from climate change, producing waves up to 23 meters high, or over 76 feet. Fortunately, most waves are much smaller than that, but still a force to be reckoned with. If you want to read more about wind and waves in Antarctica, I highly recommend Rounding the Horn by Dallas Murphy, published in 2004. He provides the best description of wind and waves in the Southern Ocean than any I've read. The last thing I want to mention about winds in the Antarctic are those on the continent itself. Because Antarctica is covered with ice, the temperature of the air immediately above the ice is cold, and colder than air higher up. This warm air that is higher up is less dense than the cold, so the cold air is forced to flow downward with gravity. Cold, dense air picks up speed when it drops off the polar plateau, which again has an average elevation of 9,800 feet, and speeds up even more when channeled down canyons and glaciers to the sea. These winds can form suddenly and come screaming down glaciers at hurricane force. They are referred to as katabatic winds, katabatic being a Greek word for to flow downhill, and they are especially strong in the summer when temperature and pressure differences between surface and higher air masses are greatest. These and other wind patterns make Antarctica the windiest place on Earth. These winds blowing off the polar plateau to sea also drive another ocean current, the east wind drift, that blows counterclockwise around the coast of Antarctica in the opposite direction of the Antarctic circumpolar current or west wind drift farther offshore. We'll revisit these currents in another podcast and how they influence the marine ecology of Antarctica. Thank you for listening to part three of my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and I hope you tune in to part four, Sea Ice and Polinians.